God now directs Saul to the prophet Samuel for his anointing as Israel's captain along with an introduction to the kingdom's purpose. This is the 24th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from the entire chapter, chapter 10, chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, as we read of the coronation of Saul, the reprobate king. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say unto thee, The assage which thou went to seek are found. And lo, thy father had left the care of the asses in Sarwith for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet the three men going up to God, to Bethel, one carrying three kids, and another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute thee, and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. After that, Thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass, when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery, and a tablet, and a pipe, and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shall be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs are come unto thee, that thou do as occasion shall serve thee, for God is with thee, and thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass, when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that has come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And one of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place, and Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, Whither went ye? And he said, To seek the asses. And when we saw that they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto thee. And Saul said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the asses were found, but of the matter of the kingdom, whereof Samuel spake, he told him not. And Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpe, and said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all the kingdoms and of them that oppressed you. And ye have this day rejected your God who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. 
And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken. And Saul the son of Kish was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. John, in John chapter 3, the first seven verses, as the Lord speaks of what it really means to be born again. By the same Spirit, the Apostle John records this for us. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art the teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, The word of our God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, it was according to God's plan that Saul would be ordained as the king, or more precisely, the captain of Israel. Now, to be sure, Saul was a fraud with a questionable background, a questionable lineage from the tribe of Benjamin. And yet, in God's mysterious providence, he chooses Saul as king. To the untrained eye, this was beyond belief, since Saul was from that questionable background, that questionable lineage, which at best had a spotty, maybe even a dubious past. The tribe of Benjamin, if not for the mercy of God, would have been wiped off the face of the earth for their rebellion during the days of the judges. Now if you remember, while the Levite, during the days of the judges, was sojourning in the land of his brethren, who he thought was his brethren, the tribe of Benjamin, seeking the comfort of his brethren rather than into a pagan area. He thought he'd be safe within the tribe of Benjamin. Certain men of that tribe, of his brethren, came and assaulted the Levite's wife to the point where she died, ravaging her and killing her. And as a response... The Levite, in an incredible action which is almost monstrous, 
carves up his wife into 12 pieces and mails those pieces to each of the 12 tribes, showing the horrendous atrocity of the tribe of Benjamin that was put upon the priest and upon his wife. And through that, he calls all the tribes together, uniting them, perhaps even intimidating them, in order to galvanize them for justice against those who perpetuated such a horrible crime. But instead of coming to seek out the men of Belial who had done this thing, the tribe of Benjamin decided to aid the wicked, and instead of aiding in the capture and execution of the murderous rapists, they defended them by warring against the other tribes. By God's mercy, they were defeated, eventually, but God spared 600 of that tribe of the Benjamites so that the tribe would not be vanquished entirely from Israel. But what is so fascinating about Saul's lineage, and remember last week we spoke about the lineage, how it was so particular, instead of immediately addressing Saul or introducing us to Saul, he introduces us first to his lineage because this was very important. And what is so fascinating about Saul's lineage is that the number six is in view. Saul is number six in the line of his father in the account of verse 1 of chapter 9, which correlates with the symbology that Saul is a representation, as we saw last week, of Adam, which was created on the sixth day, thus making David number seven, representing the Sabbath day or the day of rest. David, of course, a great type of Christ. The question that we asked was, who is Saul a great type of? Who was the first king? Adam. Who rebelled? who is a reprobate, Adam, who came to save the world, Christ, the last Adam or the second Adam. And this is why the apostle uses this term of the seventh day Sabbath rest to point to the Lord Jesus Christ because it is certainly David who gave Israel rest, not Saul. What Saul gave them was darkness, tyranny, wickedness, murder, and chaos. Notice the Hebrew writer, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 And following, there remaineth therefore a rest, a Sabbath, to the people of God, for he that is entered into his rest, Christ's rest, in other words, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from him. And then in verse 11, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, what is even more interesting is that it is very possible, even probable, that Saul's great-great-great-grandfather, Aphia, was one of, or could have been one of the 600 men that was spared during that horrific event. In fact, he had to be at least one of the 600 men that was spared. Otherwise, he wouldn't have a tribe of Benjamin. But it might even be possible, could it be, that he was even one of the men of Belial, or at least those who conspired with them and yet had escaped that execution. Nevertheless, this lineage was questionable. In Samuel's mind, to choose a man from the tribe of Benjamin, knowing the history, and certainly Samuel knew the history, choosing this man from this lineage of of, of dubious Benjamites, it must have been something very difficult for for Samuel to, to wrap his head around. But it was because the Lord was choosing Saul out of this tribe of Benjamin, as a chastisement. If Israel would reject God as king, 
If Israel would reject the Lord as judge and lawgiver, then I will give you something entirely opposite of what I would give you. I will give you Saul. I will give you the chastising tyranny of Saul. And yet, because God had commanded, Samuel obeyed. Now the first question here that should be asked is, why did Samuel obey? Why didn't he just say, no Lord, we don't see him arguing with God. For sure he wasn't happy, but he's not arguing with God. In other words, in Samuel's mind, thy will be done, not my will be done. Now, why did he obey? Well, Samuel just knew that for whatever reason, this was God's will. And it is so astonishing that he didn't even argue. He didn't have the temerity to argue. He simply obeyed. Then Samuel, in his obedience, notice verse 1 of chapter 10, took a vial of oil and put it upon Saul's head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee? I'm doing this because the Lord hath anointed thee. Perhaps you might read into this as Samuel saying, This is not my decision, but this is God's decision. And for whatever reason, we have this governor. Whatever reason, we have this lawmaker, this body of lawmakers. Whatever reason, in Providence, we have this Congress, or this Senate, or this President, or this local magistrate. Wasn't my decision, but God knows best. Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain? Notice, not king, but captain. And it is as if he is telling Saul that this inauguration was not his idea, nor did he approve. This was God's will. This was the entire orchestration of the Lord for whatever purpose God had in view. But it's important to notice that though Samuel disapproved of Saul's ordination, he nevertheless kisses him, which is of course a sign of reconciliation, and anoints him as captain. But why would he kiss him? Why would that symbol of kissing be so important here where God is recording it in this verse? Well, we know that kissing is a sign of reconciliation. The apostles would gather together, they would give each other a a holy kiss, they would recognize each other as brethren, God warns the kings of the earth to reconcile with the sun lest they be destroyed off the face of the earth when he says kiss the sun in Psalm 2 lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Now of course we do have the Judas kiss when he kissed him in hypocrisy and arrogance and wicked murderous intent. But Samuel kisses Saul. Reconciling with this? Well perhaps reconciling with God's will, yes. But not so much perhaps with Saul himself. Perhaps simply reconciling with God's will in the ordination of Saul and God's determination to chasten Israel with the tyranny that Saul would inaugurate because if anybody knew what Saul was about to do, it was Samuel and he told Israel. In fact, he's going to tell him again. We have to ask then, was Saul being anointed actually as king? Was that was the was that the ceremony? Was that what it was all about? Now Samuel is very explicit as to what Saul was being ordained to. 
Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain? Notice he doesn't use the word king. Captain over his inheritance. Now, the Hebrew word that God uses to identify Saul's position as captain is a word which means military commander. Nagid, a military commander. It is not the word for king. The Hebrew word for king is very distinct. It is the word melech, as we see in the word Malachi. Melech. And so Samuel ordained Saul, not technically as king, but rather as the military leader that the people really wanted. They wanted someone, they wanted someone to go out there to fight the Philistines. The ordination of a king would be reserved for the shepherd boy David, whom God had already chosen by this time as the legitimate king of Israel and Judah. And so while the people thought Saul was ordained as the legitimate king, he was actually merely ordained as the military leader of Israel, acting as a king, but not actually a king. So, God gave Israel exactly what they wanted. A captain, a military stronghold to fight their military battles. Saul was chosen by the people to take dominion. But as we shall see, he was unable to do so biblically in much the same way as Adam was called to take dominion and subdue the earth and yet failed only to purge the human race into a tyrannical graveyard spiral with sin and the wickedness of man as the tyrant. So Saul, as we saw last time, as we're seeing again, is a type of Adam. Whereas David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Since it was David and not Saul that actually establishes the kingdom in righteousness. And once again we see the relationship between Saul and David and Adam and Christ. Now the theme of Genesis chapter 3, as we will see, is fleshed out in the relationship between Saul and David. Saul is acting as the antagonist the antagonist seed, the seed of the serpent, if you will, against David. And in response, David is acting as the seed of the woman. Now we'll see more of this as we unwrap the history of Saul and David. In the next several verses, we learn that Saul, in verse 2, is told where the lost donkeys are to be found. Of course, at this point, when they were found and returned to the father, then the father was concerned about Saul. Now it's important here to note that Saul had to be told where they were because he was unable to locate them himself, signifying his inability to shepherd his responsibilities. In fact, as we saw last time, he just wanted to give up. But now learning that the asses were back in his father's house, but not by his own ingenuity or diligence, he is told that his father is concerned as to Saul's whereabouts. But now he's free to focus upon his new role as the Lord's captain. So Samuel tells Saul in verse 3, then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor. This is where he's going to meet these three men. And thou shalt meet these three men going up to God, to Bethel. And notice, carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, and one bottle of wine. And they were going to salute him, give him salutations. And they were going to give him two out of the three loaves. And they, he was going to receive this out of their hands. Now, everything in the Bible is done so that we can understand through symbolic, historic language what God is teaching as far as the gospel is concerned. It wasn't just happenstance that these three men had three loaves and, and they had a bottle of wine and three sacrificial animals. God is recording this especially so that we would learn something from these men and what they were carrying. Obviously, these were very 
important men, or at least fairly important men, since they were going to give Saul gifts in light of his ordination. But who actually were they? Now, of course, they could simply be any three men. And we could just say, well, they were just three men. And leave it at that. Yet I believe it is very safe to say, as we see through the accounts of history, whenever three men had approached either Abraham or someone else, we see this as what's called a theophany, a representation of God Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see this as the Trinity. So I believe it's very safe to say that it is God now meeting Saul. They're going up to Bethel, which means the house of God. One man has three baby goats, or sheep, as a sacrificial animal. The other one has bread, which is also connected to the gospel, and then the wine, of course, connected to the gospel. So what is here that is so important? Adam Clark, he agrees. He believes there's something very, very critical here. Notice what he says. The three kids were for sacrifice. The three loaves of bread to be offered probably as a thank offering, and the bottle of wine, full of wine, for a libation. When the blood was poured out before the Lord, then they feasted on the flesh and on the bread and probably had a sufficiency of the wine left for their own drinking. This was a sacrifice to be made. This is a very special occasion that Saul was going to be privy to and Samuel was going to bring it to pass. And he tells them as much. You wait this amount of days and then when this amount of days is passed, then you come and I will make the sacrifice. In other words, he's telling Saul, you be patient, you wait on the Lord, you wait on those days, and I will make the sacrifice. You're not the priest, I'm the priest. You are the captain, you are to wait. Now the three goats, if we're not overreaching at all, seem to then symbolize Christ's sacrifice, where the number three always points to the three days and the three nights of the atonement. And this, I believe, is significant, since none of the baby goats were given to Saul. None of the baby goats, they were all given to Samuel. It would seem as if they were withheld from him. Why were they withheld from him? Perhaps suggesting that Saul never actually received the atonement, forgiveness and regeneration, as we shall see. He never became a man of God. Third, the man had three loaves of bread. But curiously, only two were given to Saul, depriving him of all three. Fourthly, we do not read anywhere that the wine was offered to Saul either. This too is significant as wine always suggests a relationship and a communion with Christ's blood sacrifice. The message to Saul then is one of military concern. Remember, this is the reason why he was ordained as a military leader. So Saul is to assess the camp of the Philistines. So he's told to go down to the garrison of the Philistines, which he would be greeted by these company of prophets, presumably from Samuel's school of the prophets. And we read this in chapter 10, verse 5. When thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. This was the calling and duty of the prophets to set forth the will of God to the people. So, the prophets were called, this was their, their, their vocation, they were called, it was their duty to set forth the will of God to the people. And when these prophets met Saul, they seemed to be in, in the mode of celebration because when we read of the psaltery, which was actually a bagpipe uh, of type of an instrument, a tabret, which was sort of a drum or a cymbal, and a pipe, which maybe some sort of a flute, a musical tool of some sort, and a stringed instrument identified as a harp. All of these were celebratory instruments. They were celebrating. 
And it was upon these instruments that the people, those prophets, that the prophets prophesied. But the next verse is as striking as it is confusing. Notice, Samuel then in verse 6 and 7 tells Saul that he will prophesy as one of the prophets and that God will be with him. Here you have a man from Benjamin who we know is going to turn out to be a tyrant and Samuel is telling him God's going to be with him. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them. Notice, not only is God going to be with him, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon Saul, this reprobate man, this wicked man, and he's going to prophesy with the prophets. And notice, notice, he will be turned into another man. Now what is confusing about this statement is that we know Saul's tendency. We know his treachery. We know that he is not a godly man. How then could he be counted as one of the prophets? Well, Judas was counted as one of the prophets. Like Saul, Judas traveled with the company of the apostles as one of the prophets. He was even involved in preaching the gospel and casting out demons, almost in the same way as Saul is now identified as one of the prophets. And yet we know, we know that Judas was not one of God's men. Furthermore, why did Samuel tell him that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and that he would prophesy and that God would be with him? Now note carefully as to what the language means. Whenever the scripture uses the phrase, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon someone, whenever that phrase is used, it is used to signify God's spiritual equipping of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl as a warrior, a military warrior. So when the Spirit of God comes upon a man, it's equipping that individual for a specific task to bring conflict to the enemy. Now this phrase, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon, dot, 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 is used only seven times in Scripture and is always used in a military situation. Four of those times in the book of Judges, two referring to Saul and the other referring to David, all of which are attached to warfare. Notice Judges chapter 3, verse 10. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel and went out to war. Judges 6.34 But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered after him for war. Judges 11.29 then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah when he was going out to war. Judges 14.19 And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and he went down to Ascalon and slew 30 men of them and took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. A man of war. 1 Samuel 11.6 And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings and his anger was kindled greatly. And then in 1 Samuel 16.13 for David then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And what was David going to do? He was going to war. Remember, Saul is being used as a military captain in much the same way as David and the judges were used with one striking difference. He was not regenerate. 
He was acting as a rebellious type of Adam. Adam was given a military commandment to take dominion and subdue the earth. He was a son of God. He was created in righteousness, but iniquity was found in him. Adam was to act as a military leader protecting the Garden of Eden from all of its enemies. As a result of his fall, however, he slew the elect as well as the non-elect almost in the same way that we will see Saul slay the priests of God later in his tyrannical rule. The next thing that Samuel tells Saul is that he will prophesy with these prophets. Now this was important for Israel to see since God was establishing him as the captain, as the military leader, even though Saul was to be a chastening tool in God's hand against Israel. Nevertheless, in order to carry out God's plan, the people had to believe that God was pleased with Saul. And the strategy, of course, was successful. We read the response of the people in verse 11. And it came to pass, when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, notice what they're saying. Are you out of your mind? What are you thinking? Can Saul be among the prophets? We know this man. And this is so telling, their response. What is this that come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Why has he been given the spirit of prophecy? In other words, this man when he's prophesying is, is, is a, like a fish out of water. In fact, the same became an actual proverb. Notice verse 12. And one of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? It became a proverb. What Israel and Saul himself failed to grasp was that Saul was to be a prophet of judgment, a prophet of doom, a prophet of chaos, a prophet of chastisement a prophet to wake Israel up because there was not in Saul a true man. Now both verse 6 and verse 9 are even more revealing. Notice what these verses do not say. They do not say, and this is very important, they do not say that Saul was given a new heart or that he was turned into a new man, but rather he was turned into another man. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and thou shalt be turned into another man. And it was so, verse 9, that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. Not a new heart. Not a new man. He was not regenerate. He changed his outward appearance, but he never changed the man that was in. His heart was still unchanged. His outward appearance, yes, it was renovated from his former self in order to fulfill God's plan, but his heart was not changed. There is, however, a very interesting use of the word here translated as another in the Hebrew. Sometimes the exact word another man or another is translated to imply something that is strange. As in, thou shalt worship no other gods, no strange gods. And this makes perfect sense. He was turned into a strange man, another man, not a new man. Now once all this was completed, Saul meets up with his uncle who inquires of his father's asses that they were found, but he does not reveal what Samuel told him concerning the kingdom in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 5 and in verse 16. 
Samuel then calls all Israel together and introduces them to the new commander, but it's not to bless them. Remember, he is going to introduce them to Saul because this is what you wanted, this is what you're going to get, you want them, you've got them, now deal with it. Be careful what you, what you want, be careful what you pray for, be careful who you vote for, be careful who you support. This was a chastisement, a chastisement upon Israel. So Samuel calls them all together to introduce them to their new commander, not to bless them, but rather to remind them of the chastisement they were about to receive. Now notice what he does. First, he reminds them of all that the Lord has done for them. And that's always the way it is. Let's look at their history. God has blessed you. You honored God throughout the history of your nation. God blessed you when you honored Him. God cursed you when you dishonored Him. Look at the nations around the world. Look at America itself. When we honor God, God blesses us. When we dishonor God, look at what you have. Chaos, darkness, insanity, evil for good, good for evil. And Samuel called all the people together unto the Lord to Mizpe and said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and look at what you have done. Now this open is typical. A reminder. And I think we always need a reminder what God has done. So anyone that is seeking to erase the history of any nation, good or evil, is playing with fire. We need to understand our history, whether it was for good or for evil. If it was for evil, then we fix it. If it was for good, then we thank God for it. But we never erase it. We never change it. We look at it and we learn from it. But those who want to erase history actually simply want to reconstruct the future. And they want to reconstruct the future according to their own theology, their own terms, their own wicked imaginations. God is reminding Israel of what he had done. And at this point in time, Israel was not satisfied with God. America is not satisfied with God. If they were satisfied with God, God would be in everyone's thoughts. God would be in Congress. God would be in the Senate. God would be in the White House. God would be in the schools. God would be in the churches. But mankind is not satisfied with God. Israel was not satisfied with God, nor were they content with what he had done in their behalf. But they didn't only want more. They wanted different. And the thing that they wanted which was different was statism and worldliness. Today in America, what do people want? They want something different. They want Marxism. They want socialism. They want a, a, a community of chaos. They want something different. And this different, this statism, this worldliness, always metastasizes into tyranny. We have both history and scripture to prove that. We see this among the pagans as well as among those professing Christians. Whenever the church and the general populace trades God for the state and the blessings of God for the daintings of a wicked state, they have effectively chosen another God in rejection to the true God. And once that happens, as it did in Israel's day, and as it is in our day in the United States, God takes it as a personal affront and acts in judgment. They have not rejected thee, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being judge over them. So after reminding Israel of what God had done in their behalf, Samuel then drops the hammer. Verse 19. And ye, speaking to Israel, and ye, and the elders, mind you, and the church leaders, and ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations, and ye have said unto him, No, no God, no, 
nay, but set a king over us. You know, when your child says to mommy, no, when you stand as God, representation of God before your child, and that child says no, they are saying to God, no, I will not obey my mommy and daddy. I will not obey. No. And that is a dangerous place for your child to be in. And if you do not act upon it, you are taking that child and saying to that child, it is okay to say no to God. Israel said no to God, and God said, I'll give you no, and I'll give it to you in your teeth. Just like in the days of the wilderness sojourn, when they wanted the quail and rejected the manna from heaven, they finally vomited it out of their mouths before they cried out to God. Maybe that's what we need. So the entire nation of Israel had rejected the very God that had saved them from all of their enemies. And to reject God was then to reject the help that He had given them in delivering them from their enemies. Now notice, when you reject God, you reject His help too. You can't say, I don't want anything of you, God, and then pray, oh God, help me here. And isn't that what we do? We forget God all week long. We forget to teach our children in the ways of God. And then all of a sudden, some crisis hits. Or we need something. We're frightened about something. Oh, oh God, help me. You rejected God. Now you want His help. It doesn't work that way. Now the next portion of the verse is even more terrifying, if it could be even more terrifying. Notice what Samuel says. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. That's a scary thing. Samuel commands the tribes of Israel, every one of them, to present themselves before God as if they were being brought into the courtroom of the great Yahweh to be judged. God is going to examine them. Could you imagine, children or adults, if the session, the elders and the deacons said, okay, everyone, parade right now, parade before us, we're going to judge you. We're going to see who the person is that's in trouble. Sort of like when mommy and daddy, they take all of the children and they say, okay, who broke the lamp? Parade before me. Who broke the lamp? This is a scary thing. Israel was going to be paraded before God. They were going into God's courtroom and God was going to judge. And this is exactly what is happening. God is gathering these tribes to declare His covenant lawsuit against them. You see what they did? They broke the covenant. And this was a covenant lawsuit against them to show them exactly what, or rather who, was chosen as their warrior captain as a chastisement. And so, as the tribes are paraded before the Lord, Benjamin is chosen and their families. If anyone is paying any attention as to the manner in which God was seeking out an individual, then even Israel at this time would remember the account of Achan during the days of Joshua when the tribes were paraded before God into God's courtroom, then their families, and finally Achan was singled out. God is using the same situation and the same method. And by this method, Saul is finally identified, but he couldn't be found. He's hiding. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. That is the mark of a coward. That's the mark of a cowardice man that God has called, who has been ordained, who even Samuel kissed him, was told things of the kingdom, and yet he's hiding. Not a leader, nor a man given to service, he's hiding. You know, it's funny when, when you call your children together, 
say, okay, we have to do some yard work. Where is little Billy? He's hiding among the stuff. He was hiding among the stuff. Now this too is, is connects the account with Achan. And we remember what happened to Achan. He was destroyed with his entire family. Because Achan had hidden his contraband from the Canaanites and from Israel among his worldly goods commonly referred to as stuff. Now this may be an indication of both Achan and Saul's worldly covetousness since both men looked to their stuff as their comfort and security. Your stuff is not your security. You can't hide among the stuff. You can't hide among your religious profession. You can't hide in the church. You can't hide in this. You can't hide in that. You can't hide among the stuff. Because God will find you out. And this is the issue that has destroyed many in the modern church. The modern church is trusting in their worldly stuff rather than the Lord. And this intimates that Israel was looking at the outward appearance rather than the inward, inward man. And this is exactly the opposite of what the Lord looks at. He looks at the heart, not at the outward show, nor the physical beauty of a thing or, or the, of a man or of a woman or, or even the intellectual ability. You know, you think that, you know, you think that God is pleased with academics, reprobate academics. You think he's pleased with the Pharisee that can quote scripture and verse? God's not pleased with that. It might be a useful tool. But God looks at them at the heart. And it is to this man that I will look, even to him that fears the Lord and obeys my commandments, who is humble. So God looks at the heart. And so they find Saul hidden in the stuff, and they return him to the ceremony, standing head and shoulders above the people, which is quite interesting. He was a big man, a tall man, because he would go toe-to-toe with the tall Philistines. And that's exactly what the people wanted. But note how Samuel plays on the people's superficiality by pointing out the physical attributes of the man rather than the spiritual substance of Saul. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among the people. He's not speaking of Saul in his integrity. He's speaking of his physical appearance. This is what you wanted. You wanted a tall man to fight against the tall Philistines because the Philistines were tall. We're going to get to Goliath pretty soon. With the Philistines are tall. You want a tall man? Here's a tall man. Because you look at the outward appearance, not as the Lord looks. So this was really a chastisement. He had no depth of character nor any depth of integrity and it seems as if he knew it, which is probably why he hid himself among his worldly possessions. Saul had no track record The question is, what's your track record? He didn't build anything. He didn't do anything noteworthy. He couldn't even even herd a couple of donkeys without them getting away and then he can't find them. Who is this guy? He hadn't done anything worthy of kingdom advancement or biblical fidelity and it seems as if he had no intention to do anything for God anyway. Did he go to the sacrifice? Yes. Did he go to Jerusalem when he had to go? Did he worship God as he had to? Yeah, he did it by rote. That didn't mean anything. Even when he had the calling and ordination, he failed to take the reins of leadership. You see, all Saul had was an outward appearance. Like so many so-called Christian schismatics and slothful, irreverent gainsayers. Once Saul is presented, the people immediately embrace him as their king because he was tall. 
shows the superficiality of the people as well. And we read this in verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it open before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. Now, the declaration of the kingdom probably had to do with its government as well as its purpose, all of which was to be structured according to the law of God. So he's saying, this is what the kingdom should look like. Why was Samuel telling them what the kingdom should look like? So that when the kingdom went belly up, and it looked nothing like it should look like, the people might say, wow, this is not what God had intended. Maybe... He's telling them what it should look like so that they would recognize when it doesn't look like that because that's what Saul is going to perpetuate. The Reverend Scott makes this very important distinction that Samuel doesn't speak of the manner of the king as he did in his warning to the people, but rather he speaks of the kingdom itself. Notice what he says. Samuel's writing probably contained the rules of the government or in modern language, the prerogatives of the prince and the privileges of the people. The manner of the kingdom would differ considerably from the manner of the king before mentioned, the one being the appointment of God and the other the effect of human depravity when entrusted with absolute authority. So Samuel was actually warning the people what the kingdom should look like so that they would know when it didn't look like that, that there was a problem in in paradise. It seems that Samuel would be drawing from Deuteronomy 17, which detailed the manner of the kingdom, which included the warnings associated with the ordination of a king. Of course, the king was to be such and such a man, with such and such integrity. Not a buffoon, not a reprobate man, not a tyrant, but a God-fearing individual. So after rehearsing, once again, the law of God as it concerned the manner of the kingdom and its governance, Samuel sends the people home. But as for Saul, notice, he leaves for Gibeah with his followers whom God had called to support Saul. Notice, so he goes in verse 26, He goes to Gibeah, and there went him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. However, not everyone in the assembly here had a heart for Saul. Notice, for the children of Belial, they doubted that such a man as Saul could ever deliver Israel from the Philistines, and they as much made it known. They said so. Even though Saul doesn't address it, they say it. As the Hebrew puts it, he pretended to be deaf. He pretended not to hear them. Notice verse 27. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presence, but he held his peace. In other words, he pretended to be deaf. So not too long after Saul is anointed as Israel's military captain, God brings his first test by causing the Ammonites to come up against the men of Jabesh Gilead with a dreadful threat. And we will examine that in the next chapter when Saul is forced to show himself cunning as well as ruthless. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.